0: Alright, guess what book we're going to be in today? <laughs> First John, somebody got it right. Now if I ask next week, you can't say that. So, we're right at the end. So. First John chapter 5. Let me pray. Father, we're going to look at your word now, so we ask you to help us to grasp it. It's simple, but deep, very deep in terms of... Uh, the ways we can um, not do right, and the ways we need to be faithful to you. So we pray for your wisdom as we talk about some of these concepts in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to actually start in Mark chapter 12. Um, In Mark 12, Jesus is having a disputation with the Sadducees on the subject of the resurrection. If you know anything about Sadducees, they didn't believe in an afterlife or the resurrection, unlike the Pharisees who did. And there was a scribe there that day watching this disputation between Jesus and the Sadducees and he was very impressed with the way Jesus handled them because that's, a, that's one place where Jesus and Pharisees would agree that there's, an, there's eternal life, there's a resurrection to come and all of that. So um, he was impressed with the way Jesus handled their, their lack of belief in the resurrection biblically. And he thought, you know, Jesus has a really great grasp of the scriptures he's really good with the scriptures i mean we know why (laughs) but uh he he thought that so he said i'm going to ask him what the greatest commandment is so in mark chapter 12 verse 29 um, jesus answers him with a a, a text out of deuteronomy and it's it's kind of nice because jesus is always fighting with these people i should say they're fighting with him but This is one of the most sweet and peaceful interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel, so uh, him and this scribe. So anyway, Jesus says uh, in 1229 of Mark, the foremost is, so he asked him what the greatest commandment is, and Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And then the scribe says to him, he says, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then it says, when Jesus had seen that he answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So that's, a, that's kind of a nice story. <laughs> most of us uh, who've known the Lord for a long time are pretty familiar with this, what the great commandment is. The, the great commandment is to love God above everything, right? So of course, now if you went on the street and just asked people, what do you love the most? What answers do you think you might get? Yeah, don't bother again. There's all kinds of different answers, right? <laughs> actually, more than 40 years ago, or about 40 years ago, no, yeah, a little bit more than that, my friend Al McGowan, I was in film school, and my friend Al McGowan actually did that as a project. He went out on the street, he's he a believer, and he went out on the street and he asked people, who do you love? What's your greatest love? And he got all these answers. All, I don't think anybody said God. I don't think anybody, and he, it, he made a little film out of that. It was pretty entertaining. This is a totally secular school, by the way, so when he showed that in class, it was quite delightful to see the uh, way he led it around <laughs> with that subject, you know, because you're supposed to love God. You're supposed to love God. Why? Why are you supposed to love God? Well, it's, it's the most natural thing for a human being to do. I mean, every joy in life is from him. Everything, we owe our existence to him. The beautiful scenery we see this morning is his, right? All the joys of this world are provided from him. And sometimes they're provided from creatures that he made like us, human beings that make beautiful art or music or stuff, but that's from him as well. So who wouldn't put him first, since it's all based on him and he created this world. Now some people would say, Well, it's a terrible world. Uh, It's a terrible world as well. There's a lot of suffering and pain and loss. And why is that? Why is there so much suffering in our world? Well, God says that's a direct result of our not loving him above all things. That's why man fell. So it's our desire for freedom to do whatever we want to do that brought suffering into the world. If Adam and Eve had stayed true to him, that would not have happened, our race would not be fallen, we wouldn't be sinners, and there would not be a curse upon the earth. G.K. Chesterton, I don't know if he actually said it, but he's always the one that's given attribution to this quote. He said, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They become capable of believing in anything. And that's what we see in our culture all around us. People will believe anything except the truth. And when you when you unhinge from the creator and the order that he created, everything goes bonkers. It's not like, oh, this is just a perfectly normal society that doesn't have God. No, because everything that's normal and, and rational falls away when human beings detach themselves from God. Everything becomes twisted and perverse. So every day we see that in the changing morals and values of our our culture, which are never better, you know. Things do get better sometimes, but usually there's a strong Biblical foundation for things getting better, and when you take away the foundation, things get weird, really weird, bizarre weird, perverse weird. And that's the point of the last verse of 1 John. So, 1 John chapter five. So, we did make it to the end of the book. Rejoice, rejoice. And he just has these few words that really stand on their own. That's why I waited till this week to actually finish it, because just this one sentence deserves its own talk this morning. Now I am a little sad we're coming to the end of First John, because I really love First John. But and it's only been eight months, <laughs> five chapters, eight months. We did it. We made it. You didn't think we would, but we did. Now, I would say I'll, I will miss John's writing, but I won't because next week we'll be in Second John. <laughs> and then sometime after that we'll be in Third John. And then sometime after that we'll be in the Gospel of John where we'll be there for... Well, let's not think about that. <laughs> I'm liking him now. I'd never preached to these books before ever, so it, I'm really enjoying them. And I'm uh, waiting for the Gospel of John. I will, I will preach the Gospel of John in less than five years <laughs> Maybe a lot less, but I don't know. You know when I get started, I don't know. Anyway, I think you I, hopefully you'll be comfortable with his style because we've gone through this. and his style of writing is very much the same everywhere he goes. So um, anyway, he ends the letter in a very unusual way. And one thing we should all realize about first John is, and I hope you've picked it up on it if you've been with us, the repetition he uses, both in style and in vocabulary. Certain words just keep showing up. You take a main word and it shows up many, many times, many, many sentences. He's gone through the same ideas several times in the book. The word love, just in five chapters, appears 26 times. Hate appears five times. Abide, which is a big theme of his, appears 15 times, abide in the Lord. Commandment, 10 times. Sin, 16 times. No. You know, we know, we know, 36 times. (laughs) He says no. World, the world, world of sin, 18 times. So you get the picture. I mean, key, key words are used over and over again in these five rather brief chapters, actually. So then suddenly you get to the very end and there's a word he hasn't used. And it's the last word of the book, the last word of this letter. Idol, idol. How many times does idol appear in 1 John? Once, just one time. And it's the last word. So here's the last sentence. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. That's it. Oh, I didn't mention little children, seven times. Little children, seven times. (laughs) But idol, one time. So, now John is a very old man at this point. We've talked about before. He's the last apostle. He's watched over the churches of Asia Minor for decades and much beloved, and he's at an age now where everybody seems young, so um, I'm getting there. So he calls them little children, little children. And then he just gives his little children this simple command, guard yourselves from idols. Now what is an idol? So we typically think of idols as statues of gods or temples or sacred objects that people give all kinds of powers to. So when I was in China I got a chance to visit um, this Buddhist temple which is now, it's not supposed to be a temple, it's supposed to be a a site, uh, a historical site because the communists obviously don't want people being religious so it's not really a temple anymore but you climb up this really amazing winding path and you get up to this beautiful temple and in there there's this great golden statue of Buddha in there. And it's very beautiful and interesting. And anyway, a a very elderly lady got up to that whole place and she got on her knees and she's bowing to to Buddha. That's what we usually think of um, with regard to idols. Now the Bible has a lot to say about idols. And the Bible actually is pretty funny when it, I mean actually amusing when it comes to idols. Uh, The Bible mocks idols, like Psalm 115, I'm going to read part of that for you. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's the real God. And then it says. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of man's hands. They have mouths. But they cannot speak. They have eyes. But they cannot see. They have ears. But they cannot hear. They have noses. But they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. In other words, idols are nothing. Idols are nothing. They have no spiritual weight whatsoever. Remember that. Remember Psalm 115, because how could an ancient Bronze Age people, these primitive people, this is the way modern atheists talk. You worship a Bronze Age God. No, I don't. I don't worship worship a Bronze Age God. I worship the eternal God. All of those pagans in every continent on the planet, in every country on the planet, except Israel, worshipped superstitiously Man-made gods. Every single place except that one place. That's significant. So when people talk about your Bronze Age religion, say, like, no, I don't have a Bronze Age religion. I, I worship the eternal God. Everybody else worshiped bronze, had a Bronze Age religion. They worship false gods, gods of their own making. Isaiah chapter 44 has a wonderful, lengthy, mocking passage. I'm going to read part of that too. Isaiah <laughs> describes the process of how a, how a god is made. How do you make a God? Isaiah forty four fourteen. 14. Surely he cuts cedars for himself, cedar trees, and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir tree and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for the man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this, he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. Who had a fire going this uh, last day or two, right? Yeah, we did too. We don't do it very often, but we had it going yesterday. You can make a god out of the same stuff, you know, that you're putting in your fireplace. That's what he's saying. He also warms himself and says, Aha! Aha! I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. So the firewood out there, you can burn it to make make soup, you can burn it to keep warm, or you can make your god out of it and start praying to it. (laughs) Only in the entire world, only the Jews knew that that is really stupid. (laughs) That that's silly. That there's nothing to it. How did they know? How did they know? It's a devastating description there. And remember, apart from God's people, nobody else doubted the reality of those idols and their power. God's made out of human hands, worshipped by human beings. Only God's people saw through that. So why does John leave his readers, because he's writing to churches, he's writing to Christians. Why does he leave them with this particular final warning? Guard yourselves from idols. Probably most of the believers in those churches were raised, sacrificing to idols, praying to them for good fortune is boy, there's a lot of literature from the ancient world and little notes that were written to the gods and things that they found, archaeologists mainly people want healing and good fortune and successful business ventures and all that kind of stuff, you know, these all All that kind of stuff, very typically superstitious kind of things, or hoping the gods will bless them, and all of that. And and I'm sure that out of all of those believers in Christ that came out of paganism, at times might lapse or think, well, maybe I ought to cover my bases and pray to so and so as well, or something like that. I can see that happening. After all, the Old Testament presents a history of Israel that is absolutely loaded with idols in idol worship after God rescued them from Egypt, did all kinds of incredible miracles for them, planted them in a new land, blessed them abundantly, and then they turned to idols for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, massively turned to idols. So the covenant people took themselves out of the place of God's blessing by repeatedly and energetically pursuing idols. In fact, Ezekiel 20.16 says, their heart continually went after idols. Talking about the history of Israel. They loved idols, they loved idols. They preferred idols to the living God who redeemed their nation and brought them out of bondage and planted them in a beautiful place. So just knowing about the true God does not divide people from idols, that's not enough. They they knew and they still did it. And that's, why would they do that? Because human beings are fundamentally fallen, corrupt, Enemies of God, away from God, anti-God in their hearts. God calls it a heart of stone that they have with regard to him. That's what human nature is like. The rebellion of Adam is still in us. It's part of who we are as human beings. It's natural for men. Not unnatural. It's natural to love idols because of our condition, because of our nature. So that's very common. John Calvin said, Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual idol factory. Now, if you know me and you've been around me a lot, sometimes you'll see me wearing a blue hoodie that has on the front of it some Latin words. Fabricum idolorum, which is exactly what that means. Idol factory. And it's quoting Calvin there. That's actually a Calvin kind of a thing. But um, it's so true. In fact, Laura and I were going square dancing one time and I wore that and I wasn't thinking about it and people were looking at it and, and I said, what is that? And I said, idol factory, the heart is an idol factory. And they, <laughs> People kind of wigged out. But um, why are you wearing that? <laughs> the history of Israel is, is a model of that truth that the heart is an idol factory because Israel could not stop worshiping idols. And they had a direct experience with the living God. They had living prophets among them who spoke God's word. And they still worshipped idols. They chose pagan idols because their neighbors worshipped them. And they started to believe what they believe. So man is in rebellion against God. And that's why we have to have a new birth. Because the, the first birth leads us to idols. So unless we get a new birth and a new heart, if God doesn't take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, we're not going to worship the true God. So that's what has to happen. So God sent them into captivity, remember? Into Babylon for 70 years. And what's really interesting is they came out of Babylon when the the, the people that came back, they no longer worshipped pagan idols. They just stopped. And so by the time, so that's in the, 5th century BC or so. So when you when you get to Jesus' time. No Jew is worshipping idols. They, they completely gave it up. I should say. No Jew was worshipping pagan idols. They gave up pagan idols. They worshipped one God. In fact they hated idols. They hated Gentiles. They hated people that worshipped idols. But were there idols? Jesus, when he came among them, he encountered spiritual pride, self righteousness, seeking the honors of men instead of the approval of God. That's what he found. That is why Jesus so often uses this word hypocrites. To describe the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the most religious people, hypocrites. And the Greek word hypocrite, it just means actors. They are actors. They could really play the holy person beautifully well. And you've got to remember that the men who hated Jesus so much also hated idols, pagan idols. They hated Jesus equally (laughs) as much as they hated that. But the thing is, they could hate Jesus and hate idols because they were religious, but they didn't love God. They didn't love God above all things. They loved themselves. So when Jesus excoriates the scribes and the Pharisees, like Matthew 23, the whole chapter is him pronouncing woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. He actually identifies what's motivating their behavior. He says it very plainly. Matthew 23, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden the phylacteries. Those are those uh, things they had on their arms and on their head, you know, to have the scripture box on your head. And They lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor. He, he uses that word. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. And respectful greetings in the marketplace. And being called rabbi. By men. That's their great love. And that's why they can hate Jesus. Because he told them to repent. That's why they hated John the Baptist. Because he told them to repent. God is just a tool to them. For positioning themselves. As important people. Men deserving respect. That's why they were in it. That's why they were super religious. And you see that today, sometimes, amongst church leaders as well. Beware of people like that. Now John is writing to mostly Gentile converts, so in Greco-Roman culture they would have, for the most part, superstitiously probably people that worship Roman gods or Greek gods, in fact, In the first century, Egyptian gods were kind of making a comeback. There were sort of Egyptian cults that were spread all through the Roman Empire, and they might have worshipped them too. So, in the first century, there were plenty of uh, idols available. And there were also cynics. You know that word cynic? Those were unbelievers, pagans that didn't believe in any gods at all. They just mocked the gods. Some people were loud about it, and some people were quietly that way. But John is writing to Christians, he's writing to believers. Who would have had that in their background but who would have forsaken that to follow Christ. So it's fitting that he says guard yourselves from idols. And it's a bit stunning because like I said he hasn't used the word idol up until now. He's just starting to do it. And I think he saved the word to the end. So and just the last word ringing in your ear after somebody would read this letter. Guard yourselves from idols. End of book. By leaving it to the very end, it, it's impactful that you remember. Oh, wow, that was the last thing he said there. So I think that's why he's doing it. The idea of a Christian serving an idol is totally abhorrent. But ser- serving pagan idols has not been mentioned by John. So I don't think that's what he's actually mainly referring to. Obviously, there could be Christians that have reverted back now and then or something like that or gone to a temple or something that, um, for, for luck or something. But he, I, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Remember what the letter's theme is. He's writing because these people had left the church for a Christian cult, a semi-Christian cult, where they used Jesus as their model, as their example. So that's that's we talked about that a lot because that's the main idea in the letter here that people people went to this gnostic cult that was luring away christians not to go worship idols they didn't worship idols either it was a philosophical cult it was a cult of secret wisdom hidden wisdom and they used jesus as their focal point because jesus was a wonderful person and they're they're luring christians away from christianity so they're presenting a false christ they're misusing The name of Jesus. So if I offer you a Jesus who is not the Son of God and not the creator of the universe and not the judge of the living and the dead, who did not pay for your sins with his own blood, if I give you a Jesus without any of that, what am I doing? I'm giving you an idol. Exactly, I'm offering you an idol, even though it has his name, an idol of the mind. And if you accept, if you receive a made-up Jesus, you are being inoculated to the real Jesus. I've got Jesus. And that's keeping people away from the real Jesus, and that keeps them away from salvation. There's a lot of people that think, I have Jesus, but really don't have him at all because they've got a made-up one, not a Bible one. A false Jesus is offered all the time. All the time, people knock on your door to offer you a false Jesus. You know, they'll even ride a bicycle over to your house. <laughs> and you know, this is rampant in our day. We we have all these, we still have these 19th century cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christian Science and all of that stuff, who are, are sometimes called apostles of denial because they deny every major doctrine about Christ. But I think the more common problem actually today and what I'm seeing more and more is I I just got a nice letter from a Jehovah's Witness lady the other day just telling me to become one. And uh, I'm gonna kind of write her back, beautiful handwriting. They don't knock on doors much anymore. They send letters after COVID. That's kind of what they do. But I think the more common problem is historic Christian denominations that used to preach the gospel and believe the Bible and have stopped doing that. They've given that up. And there's a lot. In fact the majority of what are called mainline churches no longer teach the Bible no longer believe the Bible and they've tossed aside Christian moral teaching completely and guess what the world says you're so right we love you you're right finally you people get it these churches have have leaned in to the idols of our age So whatever the current thing is, they buy that. And they baptize it and they put Jesus' name on it. They bow before it. They've taken Jesus' name and their historic place in culture as worshipers of the biblical Jesus. And they've traded that in. They've traded in the faithfulness that used to represent those churches. To bring people this new updated Jesus who's nothing like the real Jesus at all. There isn't anything more evil, I think, than misrepresenting who Jesus is to people. What could be greater, a greater evil than saying that Jesus is something different than who he is? That he's not a savior from sin. That, that's not even important. Let's not talk sin. Jesus was inclusive. He was accepting of everyone. Jesus loves you just the way you are, which isn't quite true. He actually, there's got to put some other words in there. Jesus loves you in spite of the way you are. <laughs> And his plan is to change you into somebody who knows God and will live for God. That's his, That's what Jesus, that's how his love comes forth. When you tell people Jesus loves you just as you are, you don't have to change a blessed thing. That's lie. And that's misrepresenting the whole purpose for Jesus coming into the world. There isn't anything more evil than that that I can think of. The reason I'm thinking about that is because the Anglican church just had this rather large incident. Now, the Anglican Church, historically, was founded on biblical principles. They have a great doctrinal statement. It's one of the noble churches of the Reformation and all of that. Uh, It's changed a lot over the years. It's a global church because, well, England controlled about half the world, and their church followed it everywhere. You know, Virginia was founded as an Anglican colony. You couldn't even be anything else. Well, you could be, but they didn't like it. (laughs) It It was the official government of the Virginia colonies and all of that. So... Um, no it's been a mess for a while for probably a hundred years and letting in all kinds of ideas and people that don't believe the gospel don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus even they just tried but now they're, they're in this relevant mode because of course Christianity's dying in Europe because of that you know these people don't believe it anymore they're not caring about it people went to church basically because that's what good people do But but they've been denying the authority of the Bible for a while. But this week, this week, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the titular head of the Church of England, so they have, all their bishops are supposed to be equal because they don't have a pope, but he's the first among equals is the way they put it. So he's the, the Bishop of Canterbury was really the governing person and he has a council of bishops and all that kind of stuff. So they decided that they are not going to perform same-sex marriages. So people that are more biblically oriented, we go well. That's that's a good thing. <laughs> the Church of Scotland will totally uh, marry homosexuals. The Church of Ireland probably will, but the Church of England said we're not going. But we will bless same-sex unions. So we'll deny them marriage, but you can bring your partner, and we will bless your fornication lifestyle. That's literally what they're saying. So to them, that's a moderating position between the left and the right in the church, and they think that's very reasonable. Well, there's been a tension between the Anglican Church, which has been going down this path for a while, and all the other Anglican churches in the rest of the world, especially in Africa, but in many other places. So there's the Europe-American Anglican Church, which has moved far away from Scripture over time, but there's African churches and in other parts of other parts of the British Empire world who still think the Bible's true and highly educated bishops in those places and they're standing up now and they said, if you do this, we are breaking communion with you and the Anglican Church will no longer be one body. We will not acknowledge the Archbishop of Canterbury as the leader of our movement. That's a huge event that just happened. Something just like that happened in the Methodist Church this last year. So finally, the Methodists that believe the Bible broke away from the big Methodist Church that historically believed the Bible, but stopped doing that. And now they created the Global Methodist Church, it's called it. So it's not the United Methodist Church. They broke away from that and they're creating the Global Methodist Church. So this is happening all over the place in these large denominations. And it's been going on for a long time, it seems like people finally just said this is the make or break issue. As soon as you say sin is good, we've got we've to break apart. So that's what's going on. So, um, why bring up all that? Well, Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is Colossians 3, 4 through 6. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality Impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. That's Paul's word. So sexual immorality is idolatry. And we, that's really what Christianity is struggling with in the 21st century, 21st century. The religion of sexual freedom. Absolute sexual freedom. To do anything you want. And that's why they're pushing it on children now. Even in public schools. That's why all this is happening. That is a religion. And Paul calls it an idol. Then he says, verse 6, Colossians 3, 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So sexual sin is clearly a part of idolatry. It is disobedience for sure. But it's idolatry by putting sexual desire above God doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how you made us. We know better or we feel it strongly and we're the center of the universe so we're just gonna go that way. So sexual freedom really is the new religion. That's the American Idol. You thought it was people that sang. <laughs> the American Idol is pure, is sexual freedom. What a, what a tawdry thing to trade God for. You know? If you're fundamentally a sinner, You should be repenting before God. You know, there's a guy named Beckett Cook. I don't know if you know who he is, but um, he was a very well-placed man in Hollywood, uh, designer, had all this kind of stuff, flaming homosexual, very promiscuous lifestyle, horrible thing, and then he came to Christ. And now he has like a podcast show. It's quite excellent. Changed his life completely. Lives a celibate life. Um, I'm sure he still has same-sex attraction. He uh, That's how he's wired, but he's living for Jesus and he's choosing to follow Jesus. He said this, he said, quote, all my life i had been told to be true to myself, but the self is corrupted by sin. Therefore being true to yourself is nothing short of idolatry, unquote. Exactly! Mr. Cook gets it exactly. If you're fundamentally a sinner, then being true to yourself is a pretty lousy idea. I've got to be true to my sinful self. No, no, that's not what Jesus came for. You weren't created to be true to yourself. You were created to be true to, yeah, good. God, that's right, your creator. It's sort of like the theme of every Disney movie in the last 30 or 40 years. Follow your heart, follow your heart. You know what the Bible says about the human heart, right? John 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick, who can understand it? That's what the Bible says about your heart. And since that's true, probably it's a good idea for Christians to remind their heart that it has to answer to King Jesus. That's, that's actually where we're supposed to be lining our heart up with. That's why, actually, that's why God has to take a heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh because if you're following a stone heart, then you are, you don't care what God says about anything. But even a believer still has a sin nature. So we're not good enough to follow our heart all the time and let our heart tell us what to do. You've got to measure your heart. You've got to speak truth to your heart. Your heart can get you in a lot of trouble. have Look, I've been in the ministry since, when was that? When the snow came? 1990. I've been here since 1990. I've seen a lot of people follow their heart to disaster, spiritual disaster. It happens all the time. I hope you're not one of those. Don't be one of those. But it does happen. So that's why John says it here. So regarding our topic of idolatry, whatever your sinful bent is, whatever it is, if you affirm it, you're an idolater. You're putting something above God. And that's what idolatry is. So we find ourselves in a time when churches, these once historic faithful churches, tell people, go ahead and indulge your lusts. Even when the Bible says it will bring God's wrath down on them, churches are telling people to go ahead and do that. Oh, God's wrath, that's so old-fashioned. This is the 21st century. Well, we'll see. We'll see, because the day will show it, as they say. The question for Christians in every generation is, do we follow the world, Or do we follow the Lord? Because they're always, there might be all kinds of different ways. It could be, the world could be very religious people who use God's name in our self-righteous, like the Pharisees. That could be the world. Or the world could be wild-eyed pagans who will do anything with their bodies. That could be the world. We're supposed to follow the Lord. And the Lord solves both of those problems. Telling people in a decadent culture that Jesus doesn't support the moral perspective of the Bible, that Jesus is against the Bible, which is what these churches do, that's the arrogance of that, the prideful arrogance of that, of inventing a Jesus to match your sins, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. Making Jesus a buddy is idolatry, or an, or a comfort dog, you know? I've got Jesus, he kept, he's very kind to me and I, I really like that. I just do whatever I want, but, you know, he's, uh, he's not that either. He's not, a, he's, he's not a therapist. Does Jesus help us with our problems? Of course he does. As we submit to him as our king and our savior, our precious savior. He's the creator, he's the king, he's the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus said, all judgment has been given to me. We will face him one day. He's also a most precious and gracious and loving Savior who will take the worst sinner, like Beckett Cook, for example, and make them a saint. He will do that. He's a Savior from sin, not a Savior to affirm sin. That doesn't even make sense. But there are pastors, churches, movements all about doing that. So if you don't know Him as all that He is, You're going to make an idol. And you're going to attach his name to it. Whether it be a super pharisaical kind of religion. That's all about works righteousness. And pride and arrogance. Or whether it's a wild decadent crazy lifestyle. That you stick his name on that too. The real Jesus when he gets a hold of you. Has you falling on your knees before him. As as a holy savior. As God come in the flesh. A Savior whose love for you in your sinful state sent him to the cross, which he gladly bore to save you from your sins. You know, these people that call themselves progressive Christians, they mock the cross of Christ. They mock it openly, they call it cosmic child abuse. You people believe in cosmic child abuse. The father sending his son to die a horrible bloody death for you. What, what a wretched thing. How could you even speak of it that way? How could you speak of your God that way? Because he loves us so much. That he satisfied his own just wrath. By taking all of his hatred for sin upon himself. You call that child abuse? Jesus did volunteer for that job you know. They hate the cross. Why do they hate the cross so much? Because it shows what sin deserves. That's why these people that call themselves Christians hate the cross. So idolatry in churches is just it's just like in the Old Testament when they literally put physical idols of the Asherim or Molech or Baal in the temple. They actually put all those statues in the temple at one point. They were so fallen. There's no greater disaster than false teachers that promote another Jesus. Now, I don't think they really believe in him at all, of course, and I don't think they believe they're gonna give an account, but they will give an account. Now, now I wanna to turn to this other issue real quick and then we'll wrap this up. So for us, true Christians, if you're a born-again Christian, you love Jesus and you, God's first in your heart, idols don't have to be religious, okay? They can be anything. So for true believers, idolatry is a matter, and this is why John is talking about it too. It's a matter of getting things out of order, out of order, rather than just denying the truth. We're not going to deny the truth, but we can get out of order. And that's why I began with telling about Jesus giving the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, because an idol can be anything that you love more. Than God, and that can happen to believers. Now they wouldn't say, "I love baseball more than God," or whatever the thing might be. But by their commitment to something, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned baseball. I was a bad, that was a bad thing. Can be anything. Charles Spurgeon said it like this: I think he, he said it the best. If you love anything better than God, you're an idolater. If there is anything you would not give up for God that thing is an idol. If there's anything that you seek with greater fervor than God, it's an idol. And then he says, conversion means turning from every idol. I think he's totally right about that. God just has to have first place. Baseball's great. It just has to be here. And God has to be here. In our love, in our affections, God has to be first. Another 19th century preacher, J.C. Philpot, a great name, but I love him. I read him a lot. He says, it is true that golden calves are not now worshipped. At least the calf is not, if the gold be. Nor do Protestants adore image of, images of wood or brass or stone, but rank, property, fashion, honor, the opinion of the world with everything which feeds the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are as much idolized now, he says, as Baal and Molech once were in Judea. So these are what we might call respectable idols. (laughs) We talked about respectable sins. These are respectable idols. That was 150 years ago he wrote that. Human beings haven't changed one bit. It's still true, only it's just a little more brazen. Anything, anything we set before God, above God, in the place of God, is an idol. And that's what human beings do. And since John is talking to Christians in 1 John chapter 5, we're talking about more than falling into idolatry as worshiping something. But idolatry can be simply elevating things above God. That It's that simple. And maybe we're unaware. But if we're unaware, we need to be aware. We need to make ourselves aware. Am I doing that? Am I putting something above God or in the place of God? So we're talking about affections, our love. What's it, where's, the, where's our greatest love going? If I love money more than God, it's going to show in how I live my life. It, it shows in everything I do. It, it's an idol. If I love sports more than God or any hobby or interest, if something else consumes me more than God, that's an idol. And that doesn't mean you can't have hobbies or build a successful business through a lot of hard work or play sports or delight in nature or it doesn't mean you can't do those things. It does mean that God comes first in whatever the, your endeavors are in life, in your heart, in your life. One more 19th century preacher, James John Engel James, he says, through the deceitfulness of the heart we are very apt to be imposed upon by the pure and lawful objects which in some cases are thus idolized lawful i mean in themselves <coughs> and sinful only in the excessive degree in which they are regarded you see what he's saying these are good things there's nothing wrong with these things but the degree of devotion to them if it takes away from god is at that it becomes sinful As professors of true religion, you do not and cannot love and worship sin. The children of this world may do this and exalt their vices into God's, but many of your idols are virtues and objects in themselves quite innocent. You may and ought to love your relatives. You may and ought to value your business, home, ministers, the ordinances of religion. These things become sinful only when loved more than God. Here lies the difficulty to keep them in due subordination to God. I thought it was so amusing that he said "Your are ministers. Some people really do love their ministers more than God. That's what they're devoted to. That's wrong. So you see what he's saying. A Christian has to be aware that human nature has a tendency, and we still have it, to put God farther down on the list of priorities than other things. That's our our nature, and we have to fight that. We have to be aware of that, taking us over, becoming an idol. It's so easy to do that because the heart is deceitful. So, ministers can be idols, politicians can be idols, political parties can be idols, hobbies can be idols, sports can be idols, entertainers can be idols. In fact, we call them idols. (laughs) The question is am, am I giving God his due? Am I serving him above all other interests, all other things? Am I honoring him above all things? That's the question. So a Christian exists to serve the Lord. And there are many ways of doing that. A lot of different ways. It might look very different for different people. Be careful not to judge other people too harshly because they do it differently than you. But all of us should be putting God first and serving him in whatever way God has for us to do that. It is still true that a godly life. Will reflect the centrality of Jesus. In our hearts and in our lives. That's always true. How you do that might look different from somebody else. But it's important to, to take stock. So going back to Spurgeon. Let me just cl- cl- close with his questions. Is anything better than God to you? Is there anything that you would not give up for God? Is there anything that you seek with greater fervor than honoring God? If you can say yes to any of those questions, repent. (laughs) Repent. That's where your work has to be done. It's pretty simple, actually. That's where the work has to be. We all have our issues. So put things in the right order. Make sure your love, the highest love you have is for God. Because he deserves it. It's only right. Serve the Lord. Okay, let's pray. Our great Lord and Savior, how how easy it is to exalt what we see over what we know and believe in our hearts. We are moved to idolatry sometimes. Do whatever you will to help us to stay focused on you, to love you with all that we have. We know when we do that, all else will be sorted out properly. So every day, Father, we ask you to show us the narrow path of faith in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, next week second John